If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. You've heard the old tales of the rope shrine maidens of Miku of Mifuyu, but it gets worse somehow, more tragic, more difficult. So steady yourself. From an outsider's perspective, Minakami Village was perhaps an odd, sequestered place nestled deeply into a serene forest that, for whatever reason, wasn't welcoming to outsiders. But the devil is always in the details, isn't it? Hamuro Mansion oversaw the Hellgate, and Minakami Village tended to the hellish abyss. Though do not confuse the two, because the abyss operates under its own rules. About every decade, maybe two, there really isn't a timeline on these things. Disturbances around the region would begin. Rumbles would turn to earthquakes over time, eventually would become poor harvests, cascading into sudden, unexplainable deaths. And though they all differed, they were connected. They were merely warning signs that the hellish abyss was waking up. It was said that if this was ignored, then the abyss would spew forth darkness which would cover the land, killing all within its radius and corrupting every spirit that it engulfed. Regardless of their innocence or their guilt, it would claim all within. It was an event called the Repentance, and warnings of it were passed down through the uncounted generations of this land. But so too were instructions on how to satisfy the hellish abyss, how to stave off the Repentance, how to keep safe the region. Once the earth began its rumbling, there was still yet time to prepare for a ritual called the Crimson Sacrifice. The process was overseen by a ceremony master, with leaders of the village acting as veiled priests, typically from prominent houses. However, there are several cogs in this machine, and variables can change how things are carried out. During a typical ritual cycle, twin children, generally under the age of 18, are chosen to be the center of the Crimson Sacrifice. However, should twins not be ready or available, an alternative is found. This is called the Hidden Ceremony, and we will put our pieces into play here first so that everything else has context. The Hidden Ceremony placates the abyss when the Crimson Sacrifice cannot take place. It's meant to buy time until twins are ready or available for the proper ritual. During the hidden ceremony, a visitor to the village or an outsider is kidnapped and imprisoned. It's someone who is there alone, who will not be missed, whose disappearance can quietly be covered up. The veiled priests who assist the ceremony master get their name from their garb. They wear terrifying veils over their face covered in markings to protect them from the spirits within the hellish abyss. And the ceremony master oversees every step while the veiled priests handle the safekeeping and transport of their victim, who is called the Kusabi. When it is their time, the victim is taken to the rope temple and suspended off the floor. The veiled priests then lash at and cut the victim for as long as possible with the intention of bringing them to the brink of death with the most suffering that they can inflict without killing them. The greater their pain, the more the hellish abyss will be calmed. During this torture, people called mourners prepare themselves around the pit. You see, looking upon the hellish abyss would cause trauma, blindness, and madness. The mourners were made up of men who were once criminals or servants. They were forced to look at the abyss and were partially insane and completely blind because of it. The mourners lived underground, maintaining old paths that allowed for travel between important religious sites so that villagers were spared the sight and knowledge of what was going on. Only the mourners were allowed to be near the abyss. Anyone who got too close to the pit would be tainted by it, therefore becoming a mourner themselves. When the Kusabi, the victim, was near death after being cut repeatedly by the veiled priests, 
They were taken via those underground paths to the hellish abyss, where they were handed off to the mourners. The mourners wrapped the kasabi in rope and lowered them down into the pit. With the hidden ceremony complete, time would be bought, the repentance delayed. It was said that the first kusabi, the first victim of the hidden ceremony, was a ceremony master himself that chose to carry out the ritual in order to save the region. It was a desperate attempt to stave off the hellish abyss and it had worked. But remember, this is a temporary fix. Twins had to be found for the full and proper ritual. Eventually, the crimson sacrifice had to take place. When twins were found and the time was right, preparations began. The ceremony master oversaw each step. The veiled priests enacted the ritual. In this region, the elder of the twins was the one born second. The stronger twin would allow their weaker sibling to enter the world first to see them safely delivered. So, tradition dictated that the elder and stronger of the twins was born second, and this will matter soon. Knowing what was to come, the twins were separated from one another, taken into different houses that were connected via a sky bridge and an underground tunnel. There, each of the twins were purified and adorned as priests or priestesses. They wore the burial garb of a corpse, as though readying themselves for death. When it was time for the ritual, they were both led to an altar deep underground, in a chamber before the doors to the hellish abyss. While being overseen by the ceremony master and the veiled priests, the elder twin, the one who allowed their weaker sibling to be born first, wrapped their hands around their sibling's neck and strangled them. Now, we stop and we bring humanity to this scenario. These twins, they're just children. They love each other. Twins in this village were seen as one spirit in two bodies. They were a blessing. The elder twin, the one who strangles the other, very often they do not want to do this. It was normal that they fought against the process, yet the younger twin, the one being killed, rarely ever protested, and they never fought back. They knew that they were dying for a reason. They were saving their friends, their family, their community. They were the bulwark against hell itself. The elder twin, the stronger of the two, would not be blessed with death. Their suffering would continue with them all their life, the memory of this, the loss of their twin. This was the weight of the world itself, and they placed it upon children. Remember, strangulation can cause loss of consciousness in about 30 seconds, sure. But death, brain death, no. That's as long as five minutes of their hands around their beloved twin's neck. Count those seconds and how long five minutes feels when you're going through something traumatizing. When death finally came, the marks around the deceased twin's neck resembled that of a crimson butterfly. The mourners would come forth, collect their corpse, and take them on to the hellish abyss, where no one else could follow. The body of the sacrifice was thrown down into the pit. If the ritual was a success, a crimson butterfly would ascend from the darkness to purify the village and act as its guardian until the next ritual. The surviving twin was called the remaining, and they would carry trauma and grief with them all the rest of their life. And when finally their time came to pass on, their remains would be interred into the cemetery amongst the roots of a great decaying tree. But what if no crimson butterfly came from the darkness? What if the ritual failed? What could possibly cause such a thing? Well, let's make it personal. The precise year isn't known, but it was sometime in the early 1900s. The hellish abyss was causing earthquakes and ruining crops. Soon, the deaths would begin. Twin boys were to be the center of the ritual, Mitsuki and Itsuki Tachibana. 
Itsuki was seen as the elder of the two, the one born second. Therefore, he was stronger and he would be the one to strangle his brother. Like many of the elder children before him, Itsuki did not want to do this. He and Mitsuki were very close and they loved each other very much. And actually, quite unlike the sacrificial twins before him, Mitsuki rather agreed with Itsuki. Typically, the sacrifice sibling was very willing to die if it meant saving their village. But both Mitsuki and Itsuki saw this ritual as barbaric, cruel, and unnecessary. There had to be another way, a better way. The two of them spoke at great length about it, and they made a plan to run away from the village. But they knew that there would be consequences to doing that. You see, if they fled, it would not change the hearts or minds of the villagers. In their place, the ceremony master and his veiled priests would find an outsider to serve as a kusabi, a poor soul who would be cut to the brink of death and then lowered into the pit. And even worse, a year later, the crimson sacrifice ritual would be attempted again, with a different set of twins. And the only other set of twins in the village were dear friends to Mitsuki and Itsuki. They were twin girls named Sae and Yae. So the boys decided that they couldn't run away. They couldn't let a stranger die in their place, and they couldn't allow Sai and Yai to suffer because of them. So they decided to stay, to see the ritual through for the sake of their sweet friends. When the time came, the veiled priests separated the boys into separate houses, purified them, and led them to the underground ritual site. And poor Itsuki slowly strangled his beloved twin brother to death. But something went wrong. Perhaps it was their doubt, Perhaps it was their love for one another, but no crimson butterfly flew up from the abyss after Matsuki's corpse was thrown in, which meant the ritual had failed. The abyss was not calmed. Matsuki had died for nothing. His surviving twin, now known as a remaining, suffered immediately following the ritual. His hair turned white and he was tormented by what had happened to his brother. This was compounded by the knowledge that an outsider would be sacrificed as well and that the twin girls Sai and Yae would be next. Some time passed, every day becoming a bit more bleak. Poor harvests began, deaths occurred in and around the village, and the mourners that lived underground nearby the abyss began killing themselves. There was not a lot of time left for the twin girls. In desperation, Itsuki wrote to his friend Ryozo Munokata and begged him for help. He asked his old childhood friend to come to the village and to find him. You see, Ryozo worked as the apprentice of a folklorist named Sejiro Makabe. Ryozo had been to Minakami village before with his father, and his teacher Sejira was the sort that could get to the bottom of what was happening here and help. Together, they were neutral, they were observant, and they were relentless. They were all that Itsuki had to call upon now. So, of course, Ryozo and his teacher answered the call. They traveled to the village and began to seek out Itsuki and Mitsuki, not knowing that Mitsuki was already dead and Itsuki was being held someplace in secret. Initially, Ryozo and Sujiro were told that the twin boys had both died of an illness, but that just kind of felt wrong to them. Sujiro spent a great deal of time studying the local traditions, learning about their rituals and how twins were somehow the guardians of this village. He learned just enough to be intrigued, but not enough to know exactly what macabre practices were taking place. Sujiro didn't know that just being there put a target on his head. As an outsider who'd arrived after a failed crimson sacrifice ritual, he was in grave danger. Ryozo, however, spent his time looking into what happened to his old friends. He was given access to Itsuki's old writings and learned that at some point, he and his twin brother were trying to map ways out of the village. Itsuki seemed to fear an approaching festival of some sort. Itsuki's letter mentioned the twin girls Sai and Yae, so Ryozo looked them up and had some face-to-face -face chats with them. 
they wouldn't talk about Mitsuki or Itsuki, but they mentioned that they were going to be shrine maidens in the next ceremony, and not really knowing what that meant just sort of kicked up Ryozo's curiosities. In the coming days, Ryozo learned that the twin girls Sai and Yai were thinking about fleeing the village. They wanted to escape something that had to do with an approaching ceremony or festival. And then, one day, Ryozo received a letter, hand-delivered by Sai and Yai. It was from his teacher, Sejiro, and it was orders to leave the village. The twin girls told Ryozo that a festival was approaching that outsiders were not welcome to attend, but his teacher had special permission to stay. The twin girl Yai seemed extremely tense, like she wanted to betray a secret. When Ryozo picked up that something was happening here, he told Yai that on the day of the festival, he would come back. He would help them flee. But Yai acted like she didn't hear him and left with Sai. Before Ryozo left the village, he wrote a letter to Itsuki, not knowing if he was alive or not. He promised in his letter that he would come back on the night of the festival to help the twin girls escape, and that once they were safe, he would come back and find him and Mitsuki. He would help all of them escape. It was a promise that he bravely kept, but what he found when he went back changed him forever. His teacher, Sujiro Makabe, was chosen to be a Kusabi, a victim of the hidden sacrifice, an outsider cut and tortured to appease the abyss until the twin girls were made ready. The realization of what was going to happen slowly came to the folklorist, but when he fully understood what was going to happen, he decided to greet it with intrigue. He could not fight his fate, he was already trapped, he was imprisoned, but at least his curiosity about this ritual would be satisfied. He would get to see the hellish abyss himself. Sajira Makabe went through that terrible ritual and became a Kasabe, but in the end, it wasn't enough. The abyss calmed briefly, but doom was still imminent. So the girls were readied, and they were so afraid. Yai, the one who would be forced to strangle her sister, knew enough about what was going to happen that she made plans for herself and Sai to flee. She spoke at length with the now white-haired boy Itsuki about it, and he encouraged them both to flee the village. But Sai was a bit more complicated about it. She was terrified she did not want to be separated from her sister, but she was quietly opposed to outright abandonment of their duties. In her mind, after her death at the hands of her own sister, they would become one again. She would never be alone. She would always be with Yai, and it became a strange obsession. Sai would tell Yai that she forgave her for everything, that she wanted to be with her forever, and she became weirdly standoffish about it. With Itsuki's help, Yai devised an escape route for them that would lead them out into the forest. On the night their ritual was to take place, before the veiled priests could fetch them, Yai led her sister away from the houses and out into the forest. And it was not long until their disappearances were found out, and a hunt began for the girls. While they ran, they could hear villagers giving chase to them. And in blind fear, Yai ran as fast as she could, but Sae slowed. She didn't want to flee, she wanted to go through with the ceremony, so she tried to stop Yae by falling down. But Yae didn't see her sister's fall, she kept running ahead in blind terror, leaving Sae behind. Yae became lost in the forest, but Sae was quickly found by the villagers and taken back to Minakami village. Thinking that he had failed to help his friends, that he had failed to save a loved one yet again, the white-haired boy Itsuki hanged himself that night. It was Yai and Sai's father that was the ceremony master. He too had gone through this ritual when he was younger. He had strangled his twin brother to death to appease the abyss. So he knew well what Yai's abandonment really meant. But they had no other options before them. They had to try something to calm the abyss. Yai would not strangle Sai, so they would. 
the process of purification took place. Sai was blessed as a priestess and made to wear the attire of a dead body. Then, they led her down to the ritual site and hanged the girl by her neck. It was a poor substitution and terribly cruel, but they were desperate. Sai's corpse was thrown into the dark pit, but no crimson butterfly emerged. The ritual had completely failed again. So instead came retribution. The hellish abyss poured forth a corrupting miasma that claimed all life within the village. The fetid spirits of the Kasabi, Sajiro Makabe, and Sai herself emerged to see through a massacre. By that night's end, the girl stood in piles of the dead and manically laughed. Darkness enveloped the entirety of the village. All who stood in the surrounding hills would just see an empty space where Minakami Village once was. But it was not wiped out. It was only visible to the most unlucky who drew too close to it. And within the invisible darkness which now covered the village, the terrible night of mayhem and murder repeated itself over and over. Inhabitants of the village experienced their terror and their deaths on a loop. When the folklorist's apprentice Ryozo returned to save the girls and Itsuki, he did so not knowing that Sai and Itsuki were both dead and that Minakami village was gone. He was far, far too late. What he found at the gates of the missing village was Yae. She was weeping, she was hysterical, and she kept repeating that she was sorry. Ryozo led her away to safety and gave her a home with him. Ryozo would go on to become a folklorist himself, marrying Yae when they were a bit older. They had a daughter that they named Makoto, but Yae was always a fragile and sickly person. They went on to live at Hamuro Mansion for a time, when Yae hanged herself in the cherry atrium after being tormented by the troubled souls within it. Ryozo too died there, pursuing knowledge of the hell gate in the depths of the estate, murdered by the vengeful spirit of Kiri Hamuro. The life of Makoto and her children tied to their fates, a tragic story already told. Let's remain at the region where Minakami Village once was. Because there was still life in this region, folks who made their homes in the lovely hills around where it once was. Minakami Village became a sort of boogeyman story, one quite hard to believe. Where the village once lay, a dam was to be built. It would put the entire area underwater, and a year prior to its construction, a young surveyor named Misumi Makamura took a trip out there to scope out the area to make sure that things were in order. This was a trip that was completely above board. His employer knew where he was going, as did his significant other. But Masumi vanished during his trip. He wandered into the village, and he just never came back. After 10 days, the search for Masumi was called off, but his girlfriend would not let it go. And of course not. Who wouldn't defy heaven or hell itself if it meant finding the one you love? Her name was Miyako, and she stormed the area searching for Masumi, only for herself to two become trapped within the village. The two did eventually find one another, but shortly after their reunion, Miyako took a tumble and hurt herself, and while her boyfriend looked for other ways out, he was attacked by a kusabe, perhaps the dead folklore's Sejira Makabe himself. After his death, the roaming spirit of Masumi Makamura found the injured Miyako and strangled her to death. This terrible, brutal fate was what awaited any who walked under these forbidden grounds. Whether by accident or not, they joined the cycle of eternal torment all spirits trapped here faced. It was a place of hardship, of sadness, of suffering, and of torture. Not even the most innocent could escape the clarion call of the damned here. Now, let us know the story of the twin girls, Miu and Mayu. 
Before Minakami Dam was completed, the twin girls returned. They had grown up here. As little girls, they often played in the forests around their house, always under order from their mother to not stray too far, however. But now, in their teenage years, they wanted to go back to see it one last time before water overtook it. They were quite fond of their former playground, this beautiful forest. And for a while, Mio and Mayo hung out, remembering their childhood days here. When they were little, they had been playing a game, running up the forest path. It ended when Mayu took a hard tumble down the hill, and now she walks with a permanent limp and has to keep her right knee bandaged at all times. Mio still feels lingering guilt from her teasing and that injury. When she turns to talk to Mayu about it, the girl is gone. Mio spots her running after a crimson butterfly. She takes off after Mayu, but once she crosses the threshold, kept by twin deity statues that once littered the lost village of Minakami, she's beyond the point of no return. So simple. So quick. As Mio chases Mayu, she sees her changing between her familiar form and that of a girl in a white kimono. But she's completely unresponsive to Mio's call, and when she touches Mayu, she finds herself on her own, and the path behind her is gone. In the distance is torchlight. There's only one way forward now. And it's so, so dark here. Just a few minutes ago, the twins were sitting under a bright, warm sun. This is a far less welcoming place at night. Where did the daylight go? At a gate, Miu finds another girl in a wet kimono. It's hard to tell if it was the same one from before, but she's weeping openly and repeating that she is sorry. But this too only lasts for a moment before a crimson butterfly draws near and the weeping girl is gone. Mio is remarkably calm and collected for being in such a darkly dire place. The butterfly leads her to her sister, who is surrounded by a kaleidoscope of them. Mayu tells Mio that this is the Lost Village, a place that they'd heard about in their youth. Yet the story they know tells that it vanished during a festival. And I guess if you try hard enough, a village of the dam that disappeared after a child murder went terribly wrong and all within were doomed to eternal torment for it could be seen as a festival. On the path down to the dark village, the girls find a handbag containing some newspaper clippings about a geological surveyor who went missing here a year prior, along with a photograph of a man and a woman. So there are bits of the outside world here, other people from modern times. Maybe they're not truly alone here, or perhaps it would be better if they were. There are beings here quite interested in the arrival of these new twins. And while Mio has her senses about her, Mayu's change in behavior is unsettling. While looking around the decrepit houses, Mayu's gaze holds onto things that aren't there, as though a terror prevents her from looking away. Mio gets glimpses of it when she touches her sister, but she doesn't experience the complete submerge of horror that poor Mayu is going through. What Mio witnesses are bits of the geological surveyor's end, as well as his girlfriend's. She'd bravely come here looking for him, and in the end they both fell victim to the maliciousness of the village. The twins look around for some time. Maya was sure to ask Mio to stay close. She was afraid of being alone. As they go, they find notes from past victims and residents, little bits and pieces of the past that are meant to fill out a much larger picture. They want to get away from this place, but how? They have no way of getting back out into the forest. All they can really do right now is just stumble around looking for leads. Though clearly this place was once beautiful, there's nothing comforting here anymore. It reeks of sorrow and fear. Something catches Mio's eye in the corner of the room. A familiar friend to some, but here an unexpected weapon in a journey to come. A camera obscura, perhaps THE camera obscura, 
That's unlikely, but... Well, 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 how did you get here, little guy? The folklorist, Sujiro Makabe, had brought this here with him long ago when he and his apprentice responded to the letter of the white-haired twin, Itsuki. It's been sitting here forgotten and unused all this time. The camera captures what the naked eye cannot and banishes foul spirits that would do its wielder harm. And Mio gets a demonstration of this once she touches it. She sees a memory from the long-dead folklorist. With that small education, now Mio needs to put it into practice. Someone is violently knocking on the door. While the camera obscure is powerful and a life-saving tool, it does have a caveat. Proper use requires looking at what's drawing in. You have to gaze at the horror. You have to harden your heart to the suffering that you see. You must treat all spirits as foes to be vanquished no matter how sorrowful their cries. And Mio does it. She is a strong young woman and she holds her own against the dead eye stare of Miyako. She had come here looking for her beloved and met a terrible end. Miyako is trapped here, eternally searching for her boyfriend Masumi and wondering why he harmed her. The camera obscura will also aid Mio's direction. If she should capture important moments or places on film, it will reveal different places in the photograph that she needs to seek out. The homes and structures and halls of this town can be confusing. Sometimes necessary items or keys are difficult, nay, impossible to find. Any extra aid that is lent is most welcome indeed. When they learn more of Miyako, of her search for the man that she loved, of her sad fate, the twins reflect on her sadness and they feel empathy for her. When she appears as a full-body apparition over the shoulder of Mio, that empathy very quickly turns to abject fear. Mio takes the lead, using the camera obscura to exercise her spirit when things become too hostile. The knowledge she gains from this relatively gentle experience will carry her far in what's to come. After their confrontation, Mio has yet another vision, or perhaps calling it a dream would be more apt. She sees poor Miyako being strangled by her beloved, and her sister Mayu running towards a crimson butterfly. And when she awakens, she's alone. Mayu, her dear sweet sister, is gone, and after some searching around, Mio finds her sister departing from the building that they were in, but her response is just, I'm sorry, I have to go. Something has been calling to Mayu, and that call has been powerful enough that it's taken her away from her sister, who she has been so careful to stay close to. Mayu follows crimson butterflies through the roads and alleyways of the town until she finds a girl clad in a white kimono. And then it's back to Mio. And thus begins her journey, truly. Mio is alone now, and the dangers will not relent. She will be forced to face down unimaginable pain and death from the past residents of the Lost Village. Should she fail to do so, should she hesitate at all, or give in to her own fear, then she will be claimed. There is no other way. And for one as young as she, this is a monumental burden, telling her to overcome base instincts to flee, instead demanding that she goes towards the supernatural, yet she does it, for her sister and for herself. Mio gives chase to Mayu, sometimes fighting her way through the streets. At an old storehouse, a light is on, which for Minakami Village is kind of strange. A warm light against the bleak sky is an invitation in these parts. And within is a strange white-haired boy, and he calls Mio Yae. He seems to feel a familiarity with Mio, but who the hell is Yae? He asks her what she is still doing here in the village. 
A ritual is beginning soon, and she needs to get Sae from the ceremony's master and flee if they're to avoid the fate of the twin shrine maidens. Well, that doesn't really make any sense, but he seems well-intentioned enough. And it's a lead, so off Mio goes to find this ceremony master's house. But before she's out of sight, the white-haired boy promises her that if she gets stuck or she can't find her way out, then she can come back to see him and he will help her if possible. Mio ventures all about the village looking for this house, and she finds herself in several odd locations that don't really get her any closer to finding Mayu. It's after a great deal of looking around that Mio finally finds Mayu, standing before the gates of the village. This time, she is completely unresponsive to her though. Mayu slips through the door before her twin can catch her, leaving Mio completely alone inside, alone with them. Dead men begin to descend upon her with torches and weapons in hand. As the night has gone on, aggressions against her have incrementally increased, but any standoffishness these spirits had before is gone now. They will attack on sight. The gate that Mayu went through requires some sort of mechanisms to open. Mio will need to keep her eyes open for such things. Looks like she's in for a series of key hunts. Thankfully, unlocked doors are few and far between. Every building she can enter holds value in her progression. Within one such building, she finds another present from the dead folklorist, Sajiro Makabe. He had brought with him a projector and recorded short silent films around the village before everything went to hell. Should she track down film reels, she can come back here and enjoy a nice little show. At the upper level of the house is also a sky bridge, connecting it to the next house over, but her way there is blocked for now. Crimson butterflies begin to appear, seemingly guiding her towards help. They take her back to that white-haired boy locked in the storehouse. He tells her that the keys to the gates that Maya went through are within twin deity statues that she has spotted all around the village. She never would have figured that one out on her own. She'll need to search every single one until she finds two keys. Doing that will lead her to the ceremony master's home. The butterflies appear to help her with this task as well, and in no time at all, she has found the two keys that she needs to follow Mayu. After each success seems to come a stark reminder of where she is though. The male villagers with torches and weapons are relentless in their pursuit, and the damage they meet out is very, very real as well. They patrol the hills and the streets as though hunting something. Each note and bit of audio that Mio finds gets her a little bit closer to understanding the rituals of long ago and the horrific end that each of these people faced. It makes for a confusing blend of fear, sympathy, and disdain. Beyond the gates is a long bridge leading to an estate that perhaps was beautiful long ago. Halfway across the bridge, a sad voice calls to Mio, telling her that it hurts. An apparition is floating in the water, like she was killed and dumped here, cursed to never be able to leave. And when Mio takes her photo, she attacks. Even the most pitiable of beings here are still to be approached with caution, with the expectation of violence, no matter how sad their calls might be. Within the estate itself, Mio is greeted by a young woman in a white kimono, now covered in blood. This being does not remain to harm her though, it leaves her in peace. Once she is past the threshold of the estate, the door slams closed behind her, locking her in. She could swear that there was someone in the dark though, perhaps it was her sister. The flicker of her light reveals that this place, whatever it is, is absolutely full of spirits. A new series of escalations will begin here. There's a melancholy here, for those who can see the beauty of better times within the muck of what remains. It's a longing to know what this place once was, when there was laughter and warm light flooding the halls. Life once thrived here, in the years between the harrowing commands of the hellish abyss, when the death of twins weren't on the minds of the priests and the leaders, when things were as they should have been and life was just 
normal. Mia walks sadly along, searching for who knows what at this point. In a hallway, she has another vision, that of her sister. She looks frightened, she's alone, and in the distance is the manic laughing of an unknown female. Terrified men are running up the hallway, ignoring her completely, their echoes from the past, replaying something awful. Mayu walks the corridors of the estate until she finds that girl in a bloodied kimono, and then Mio's vision ends. She traces her footsteps, though her journey is far less peaceful. The spirits here do not ignore her presence. She does eventually find the room that Mayu entered, and it's hard to tell if what she's hearing is laughing, or weeping, or maybe it's both. It doesn't really sound like Mayu. When Miu enters the room, it is devoid of life. There's a bloodied up fire pit and a noose hanging close to it. Miu very carefully walks around the room until her foot catches on something, a corpse. Her vision once again changes and Miu sees that a slaughter took place here. And by the end, this room was filled with the dead. None of them died easy deaths. Many of them were cut or mangled, their faces locked in their final screams. Here, too, is the girl in the bloodied kimono, but what is unclear is if she's the instigator of this carnage or a victim of it. And at her side is a most foul being, the Kusabi. In life, he was cut and tortured to the brink of death to appease the hellish abyss when twins could not be readied in time. This may be the folklorist himself, it's impossible to know. Regardless, a touch from this monstrosity will instantly kill Mio, and she cannot harm it with the camera obscura. All she can do now is flee its presence. Her saving grace is that neither of these beings will follow Mio. She wanders around for a while and then returns when things seem to be a bit more calm. There's a crystal on the floor. Mio has found many of these before. She can use it with a radio to hear powerful emotions from the past, audio logs for the present day. This crystal has the words of a girl calling for her sister, Yae. Mio learned these names from that white-haired boy in the storage house. The girl speaking must be Sae, so the girl in the white kimono is Sae. And she did look quite a lot like Mayu, so the twins Yae and Sae must be the spitting image of Mio and Mayu. It's no wonder the white-haired boy kept calling Mio by the wrong name. None of this is comforting, though. That girl Sae was screeching in laughter and tears. She was covered in blood and Mayu seems to be drawn to her somehow. This is really, really bad news. Mio knows enough about the rituals now to understand that it ends in the death of a twin, and based on what she has seen, the dying twin in this case would be her sister, Mayu. All that matters now is getting Mayu and herself out of here. That requires exploring, finding upgrades, getting keys, unlocking blocked off paths, and listening to memories from the past. She learns of the folklorist, of his apprentice, of their concerns for the twin boys Itsuki and Mitsuki. She learns of the reckoning event called the Repentance when the Abyss wasn't appeased. It's all slowly beginning to come together. And then she finds Mayu? At first, it looks like she's talking to a head behind a screen, but when Mio pokes her head around, she's out cold. None of what came before this matters, though. All that matters is that she's finally found her twin sister again. Mayu tells her that someone was calling out to her, telling her to come back to perform a ritual. Mayu begs Mio to stay with her, but this request doesn't really feel entirely genuine. The gentle, sweet Mayu that we've seen before instead seems needy, clingy. But Mio promises that of course she will stay, and she tells her twin that they are getting out of this place. Via old notes, particularly those left behind by the folklorist, they learn of an escape route out of the village. The twin Sai and Yai didn't want him to be sacrificed, but only his apprentice actually made it out. The folklorist himself waited far too long to leave and he became trapped. 
Miu finds a handy map with his old things that marks precisely where that escape route is. As they venture through the estate, the ceremony master begins to appear, telling the girls that they were born for this purpose, and once Mayu is back to that bloodied room, she takes the stance of Sae in the middle of the room. It's like the farther they go, the longer they're here, the more she's losing herself. Out of concern and confusion, Mio snaps a picture of her sister and sees that there are hands reaching towards Mayu, and she sadly says that she doesn't want to kill anymore. Mayu's mental state deteriorates more and more with each room that they pass through. She's clearly stuck in the mindset of Sae and wants to carry out the Crimson Sacrifice because of it, and there's nothing that Mio can do about it. She must watch her beloved twin sister get more lost in the madness of this place, knowing that the best she can do is just try to get her out. Because what else can Mio possibly do? Physically restrain her and drag her out? Overpower Mayu? Talk sense into her? Shoo away the ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties? Perform an exorcism? She's not John Constantine, and there is no logic to this. Through books, puzzles, and notes from the past, Mio learns more about the rituals, yes, but equally as important, she learns of the consequences should those rituals fail. She learns of the repentance, of the deep fear that the elders of this village harbored, how dedicated they were to stopping the hellish abyss, and it makes one wonder, in that dire circumstance, when the life of one child or an outsider was weighed against thousands of innocents, were they wrong to carry out their practices? They couldn't just abandon the region, that would mean doom for countless more. Were the lives of the twins from those past ages worth more than all else? Veiled priests begin to encroach on the girls, the closer they get to that exit. Mayu has brief moments of clarity, where she asks if they're nearing the escape route, only to go back to her chance of destiny and sacrifice a few moments later. As they pass through old ceremony sites and holding areas, the oppressiveness of the environments changes. The darkness gives away to gentle lighting and a better decor, but that doesn't lighten the mood at all. If anything, it's a sign that they're drawing upon the epicenter of their journey. These are important places, and in Mitakami Village, that's a bad omen. But one step at a time. They collect their keys, obtain their information, unlock paths, delve deeper into the estate, and go precisely where the ceremony master would want them to be. Mio is always in the lead. Once she departs from a holding cell, the door slams closed before Mayu can follow, trapping her in a very dangerous place and isolating her from the stronger twin. Mio tells her sister that she's going to search for a key to get the door open and Mayu begs her not to go. She is not calm about her protest either. She uses Mio's promise to not leave her like a weapon. It reminds her of when they were children playing in the forest, when they were running along and Mayu was begging her to slow down to not leave her behind. It caused Mayu to slip and fall, which caused a leg injury that never really healed. But what choice does Mio have here? They can't just stay here forever. So she tells her again that she will be right back, to just wait a minute for her. Mayu was already being overtaken by another spirit, by the corrupted Sai, being influenced and manipulated by her. Mio's leaving cements that presence within her. She speaks in a voice that is not hers, but Mio cannot just sit around. And what adds to the agony of this is that minute that Mio promised turns out to be possibly hours of searching to find a way to reach Mayu. She has to leave the estate, go back to the village itself, and find the Osaka house. That she is trying to hurry compounds the immense frustration she must feel going through those old houses, trying to find keys to unlock doors, to unlock more doors, all the while every minute feels like a broken promise to Mayu. 
She finds a girl in a white kimono walking the streets, going towards the storehouse. Perhaps this was Sae before she met her bitter end, when she was full of sorrow instead of hatred. She finds her again, weeping in front of the storehouse, and she finds a crystal containing one of Sae's powerful memories. The boy in the storehouse is Itsuki. His hair turned white after he was forced to kill his twin brother, and he was imprisoned here after it was found out that he was trying to help Yai and Sai escape. Itsuki tells Mia that she needs to break a pinwheel seal on the family altar in the Osaka house to get into the basement. Down there, she will find her key. He even tells her how to solve the pinwheel puzzle and offers her kind encouragement before she departs. It's another struggle to find the right house and then the family altar, but Itsuki's guidance was on the nose. She lines up the pinwheel colors and a door to the basement opens right up for her. At first, this seems like it would have been a storage area, but the collapsed ceiling betrays that this was an underground passage. Long, long ago, a different set of twins tried to use this passageway to leave the village, but it had fallen on them. After this tragedy, it was decided that it would stay buried and unused. After some looking about, Mio finds that there are still foul spirits here. These are the mourners the blind and mostly insane beings that tended to the hellish abyss. No others were allowed to be near it, only them. They were the ones who lowered the victims into it and protected it from intruders. Mio's presence in these tunnels where they once lived is not a welcome one, and they attack her on sight, so to speak. Mio grabs the key that she needs and she rushes out of the basement. Now comes the long haul back to the Ceremony Master's estate, and this stretch will be arduous, the mourners are loose, and they are tough to handle. When she reaches the cell where Mayu was trapped, she finds that her sister is long gone. She left behind notes that said, Run, and are you going to leave me again? Along with another for Itsuki. It's an apology to him and to his little sister. Clearly, this was written from the desires of Sae, not Mayu. Mio sees another vision of her sister mindlessly walking through the village, following crimson butterflies. Mio is familiar with where she's going. Hopefully, Mayu stays there. It'll be easy enough to track down. It feels like this whole thing was just a scheme to get them separated. If Mayu is under control, then Mia will of course follow. Because Mia wouldn't just leave Mayu, Mayu is walking the path of the Crimson Sacrifice. When Mio gets back to the village, she spots her walking up on the sky bridge, being followed. She beelines for the sky bridge, but the door to the other side is locked. Nothing is ever easy, is it? And Mayu's little groupie drops in to say hello. Hard to say what killed her, but I think it might have to do with her neck. The locked door forces Mio back down into the house, but via a note from the folklorist, she's reminded that there's another connecting path under the houses as well. She could absolutely try her hand underground to get over to the other house. Dependable Itsuki offers her guidance on precisely where to go and what to do. Go to the Kiryu house, unlock the way underground via a mechanism in it, and it will get her to where Mayu slash Sae went within the Tachibana house. Twins were housed here before their ritual took place. There was tragedy here. Dolls hang from the ceiling by nurses, and Mio learns that this was once the home of a doll maker whose twin daughters were chosen long ago to be crimson sacrifices. The girls, Azami and Akane, carried out their ritual successfully, with Akane being the surviving twin. When her sister was gone, Akane fell into a deep depression and was inconsolable. Her father too mourned the loss of Azami, and to help his daughter carry on without her twin, he made for Akane a doll in the likeness of Azami. Akane became fixated on the doll and spoke to it as though it were her sister. 
the doll maker began to suspect that the vengeful spirit of his deceased daughter was inhabiting the doll, and he decided that he would hang the doll and throw it into the hellish abyss. But before he could do anything, Akane strangled him to death. Mio makes her way through this horrible place all on her own, having to assemble a doll in the twins' image and contend with the tormented girls as she goes. Their father had blocked off the underground passage with the dolls acting as the mechanism keeping it closed, as though in the end, he had gone mad in his own grief as well. Finally, Mio gets beneath the house, into the underground passage, and the bloodied, corrupt spirit of Sai is waiting. The camera obscura cannot detect her, and when Mio sees that Sai is descending upon her, she panics and drops the camera. The spirit moves far too quickly for her to recover, so Mio must run away with no camera as protection. She manages to get above the ground into the Tachibana house, but without the camera obscura, she is in big trouble. Sai's pursuit does not end there, though. She ascends into the Tachibana house and persists after Mio. One touch from Sae is death, so she must flee again. Locked doors force her down a particular path, and after a very tense chase, Mio gets some breathing room. Who knows for how long it will last, though. The last thing she has right now truly is safety. This house is in astonishingly good condition, like it was spared the brunt of that terrible massacre. Here, Mio learns a bit more about Yai and Sae trying to flee and the aftermath of that failure. Sae had fallen during their escape, probably on purpose, and after Sae was caught by the villagers, she felt resentment towards her sister. She had expected Yai to stop running after she fell, and when she didn't, Sai felt abandoned. She kept telling herself that Yai would come back for her. She blamed Yai for Itsuki's imprisonment, and she kept wondering why Yai hadn't come back yet. Down a random corridor of the house, Mio finally spots Mayu. But after she calls out for her, Mayu turns quite frightening. She's got a vicious, dead-eyed stare. And when Mio sees that Mayu and Sai are almost as one, she begins to walk towards Mio. No longer is her sister safe, her sweet, gentle sister. She carries with her a promise of violence now, so Mio cannot stay. When she's beyond a door, Mayu begins calling to her from the other side, begging her to just open the door. It's hard to ignore that request, and it sounds like Mayu again, so Mio opens the door, and it's Sai that greets her. Ever murderous, ever giggling and weeping, she will do anything she can to reach Mio, even if it means using Mayu as a puppet. Mio manages to get away, grab a key, burst her way through another door, and hide. Hide from her own sister. That compassionate, loving soul that she had known all her life. Eventually, she has to check out. She can't stay there forever. And for the rest of her time here, Mio will have to dodge her sister. Dodge Sae. Avoid her. Just unlock doors and flee the building. She decides to circle around, back into the Kiryu house, to the underground, to reclaim the camera obscura while Sae walks the halls of the Tachibana house. With the camera in hand, she can go back up into the Tachibana house with a bit more confidence and some self-defense. Go a bit slower, really look around. Mio learns that Itsuki is a remaining, that he had been a part of a crimson sacrifice ritual, that he had to kill his own twin brother. Itsuki was trying to save Sai and Yai from the pain that he had felt, from the suffering his brother went through. He didn't mean for any of this to happen. He was just trying to help. When Mio hears Mayu apologizing to Itsuki, it's hard to not feel for her. There's so much sorrow there. Despite all the danger and terror that she has been subjected to, Mio still tries to call out to Mayu, who has locked herself away in a room. But she doesn't respond to her, forcing Mio to just move on for now. She finds a most innocent creature, 
a sad being who does not deserve the hand that she has been given. She finds Chitose Tachibana, little sister to Itsuki and Matsuki. She is hiding in a closet, hiding from what's going on in the village. In life, she was too young to understand the Crimson Sacrifice ritual. She didn't know that her older brothers were to be a part of it. She didn't understand why Matsuki was gone. Yet she too was captured in this terrible loop. She was also murdered. And now she weeps and she hides her face, afraid of the world around her. It feels cruel to use the camera obscura against her, but also perhaps banishing her will give her a moment of peace. Perhaps it's the right thing to do. Mio uses her camera against the weeping tiny girl over and over and over again until the poor thing leaves behind a key tied to a crimson cord. This has helped to harden Mio's heart for whatever may come next. That key opens the door to the room that Mayu locked herself into. Mayu is once again missing, but here Mio finds a way out of the village, a path to freedom. But footsteps echo down the hall. Sai, once again, is approaching where Mio waits. The door slowly slides open, and it is Mayu who runs into Mio. As though returned to her senses, she embraces her sister. Mayu says that she doesn't know what's happening to her, but no matter what's happening, she forgives Mio, which is foreboding. What is it that she is expecting to happen here? Once again, Mio promises that she won't leave Mayu behind, but whether their end goals align is hard to tell. Regardless, the two of them make their escape from the house through the secret passage. And outside, it looks like the sunrise is approaching, a welcome sight against what has seemed like an eternal night. Mayu says that they need to get to an old tree, the one in the graveyard. Mio has seen it from afar a few times, so she knows precisely where to go. On their way through the village, they drop in to see Itsuki, but his prison window is shuttered closed and it's quiet. He doesn't respond to their calls. As they go, Mayu complains often of her leg hurting and Mio going too fast. She walks very slow. It's frustrating. When they reach the tree, Mio snaps a picture of it, and it shows her another spot, an altar that she recognizes. It's within a creepy old shrine just up the hill. Going up there gets her another image, which leads to another spot, a fence of some sort that a set of twins are going under. And close by is a conveniently placed research note from the folklorist, who believed that the exit was down the same passageway that was used during the rituals. Going that route will take them very close to the abyss, where they do not want to be. But what other choice is there? So they must be brave. The angry spirits of the veiled priests become relentless, attacking them both within and outside of the shrine. The two of them take refuge within that old tree, where it seems angry spirits will not tread. This is where the surviving twin from past ceremonies was ultimately laid to rest. Their troubled lives passed, they could find silence and peace here with the other remaining twins. Mayu will no longer rise, she's too tired, too worn down, and unwilling to get up. She murmurs in her fatigue about a number of odd things. When Mio touches her shoulder, another vision comes. It's a place of importance, underground. She walks an unknown path alone, leading to a pit in the ground. A lone male figure stands guard over it, a mourner. When Mio asks where her sister is, the mourner points down into the abyss. She gazes down into it, an act that is forbidden, and then the vision ends. Mio will have to leave Mayu here for now. From the altar within the tree, Mio takes a special octagonal key. And this is intriguing because the only place that she has seen a lock in this shape was the storeroom where Itsuki was being kept prisoner. Mio rushes back to Itsuki, that sweet spirit that has helped her so many times before. What she sees when opening that door is his death. 
after Sai was captured and brought back after he felt like he had failed them, this was the choice that he made. Sai ran into the storehouse that night of the ritual to see him one last time and found him hanging. The final words that Mio receives from him are meant for Yae. He was sure that if he could save them, that his brother would forgive him, and within his cell is a map, directions for her, denoting three places within the village that she needs to go to. There are pinwheel keys there that will open the altar within the old tree. Then they will be freed from this place. One last trip through the village to places that she knows how to reach by heart now. A woman stuffed in a kimono box has one of the keys. Then, across the sky ridge, where a ghastly girl faces a false wall holding another of the keys. Then finally, to the cemetery, to the Suchihara gravesite, being haunted by the spirit of the broken-necked woman. Putting her to rest grants Mio the final pinwheel key that she needs. These three keys come together to finally unlock their way out of this hellhole. A gracious thank you is due to Itsuki for all his aid and his patience. Their freedom is within sight now because of him. Mio can feel the rush of cold air from the doors opening. Their freedom is just up the hill in that creepy old shrine. Just a few more steps and they will be out of here. As they ascend the stairs, the fetid spirits of dead villagers give chase to the girls. They won't let their escape be an easy one. And poor Mayu, in her fatigue and with her legs, she just can't keep up. She can't outrun them. She falls behind and is taken by the pursuers. Mio tries to use the camera obscura to fight back the waves of aggressors, but there's just too many of them. She is pushed back into the shrine, safe for a few moments, and now she must decide. The way out is before her. She can leave. She can abandon Mayu here, get out of this cursed land, perhaps find help and come back later, but who knows what will happen to Mayu in her absence. It's almost certainly a death sentence to leave her behind. Or she can follow the path of the Crimson Sacrifice. She can go back to the village, walk the underground, approach the abyss, find her sister, and then do God knows what. Save her, perhaps? Find deliverance somehow? In the least, she won't be abandoning Mayo to die alone. So perhaps they'll die together. She can't possibly know what will happen down there. Putting all altruism aside, if in Mia's place, what would you do? Save yourself? Give yourself over to the unknown? Hold on to hope? Well, Mio chooses to see this through, to not abandon Mayu down here. She will go to her sister at the underground ritual site. She leaves behind the safety of the shrine, leaves behind a sure exit, and returns to Minakami village. She sees visions of Mayu as she goes. She sees her sister walking towards the ceremony master's estate, welcomed by veiled priests. Mio walks in her footsteps, returning to the estate. On the bridge before it, she sees a procession of priests guiding the Crimson Sacrifice, her sister, Sai, who says that this is how it is meant to be. Mio does not give up. She keeps up her pursuit. She runs through the halls of the estate, seeing flashes of Mayu's journey before her. She can't be far behind her now. It lays out a very clear path that she must follow to find her twin again. At the heart of the estate, Mio finds where the Kusabi ritual was carried out, where an outsider was cut to the brink of death and bound in rope. It's a truly awful sight for even the most callous-hearted. But her intrusion is immediately noticed, and for this, she will be punished. The priest and the ceremony master stalk her around the small room, whispering terrible things as they try to get their hands on her. They will cause grievous harm to the girl should they succeed. She has to take every moment she can to snap a quick picture before resuming her dodging in movement. Her primary target is the ceremony master himself. Dispatching him is the only way that she can proceed on, and it's daunting. But she does it against all odds. Beyond that terrible room, down another claustrophobic hallway, 
Mio hears her sister warning her to run away, don't come near, and then Sae speaks, urging her on, calling her Yae, telling her to hurry. Sai and her sister had promised to run away from this place together, but in the end, everyone just died. In the dark underground, the mourners that tend to the abyss stand in her way. Each one is a challenge and a grave threat. The fully upgraded Camera Obscura is a godsend in clearing these tunnels and reaching the end of this path. This place is so devoid of hope and light that surely the only beings that could survive down here were the truly mad. Finally, at the end of the tunnel, she comes to the strangling site, where one twin took the life of the other. An echo of the twin girls, Azami and Akane, remain here, trapped in perpetual suffering, stuck in those awful moments of murder. Young Mio tries to go on, down to the final site within the abyss, but another vision stops her, that of Sai's death. She was so callously hanged and then thrown into the abyss, no crimson butterfly arose. The hellish abyss instead spewed forth darkness and punishment. Sae returned as a vengeful spirit accompanied by the Kusabe. All trapped in the underground tried to flee, but it was for naught. Everyone in the village died that night, and now Mio must face down the Kusabe itself. She couldn't harm him before, but that is not the case anymore. The camera obscura can hold him back, keep him at bay. This was once a human being. He had a life, he had people that cared about him, he had a story to tell but now he carries with him only the tortured souls of those that he murdered after his own death. He uses them as a weapon against the girl. He is a terrifying being that requires patience and planning. She has to wait for the right moment to use the camera, and that means staring him down as he slowly draws closer and closer. Mio is able to send this spirit away, if only temporarily. It's all she needs, for her destination is just down the path. Mayu is waiting for her, in front of the pit. Neither of them should be here. Just being in the presence of this thing risks blindness and insanity. But Mio has come all this way to find her beloved twin, fought through hell itself to be with her. In the insanity of this place, the call of the past, Mio complies with her sister. She draws in over her twin and she wraps her hands around her neck. Mio chokes Mayu to death. When the mourners take her sister, take Mayu's body away, Mio senses return, and she's horrified. The mourners toss Mayu's body into the pit, and from it arises a crimson butterfly. The abyss is satisfied, and the darkness of perpetual night falls away. Mio chases after her sister, after the crimson butterfly. But what has been done cannot be undone.